Good morning, everyone. Uh, if you have your Bible with you, I want to encourage you to turn to the book of Matthew, but also to the book of Jonah. We will be going back and forth between the two. Um, and I'll say I, I have a little inspiration from this. Uh, from a few months ago, Steve, when he preached through Philemon, uh, preached through the whole book in a day, which was very encouraging and very um, neat to see, especially since this is how it was given to the church originally. Uh, much in the same way with the book of Jonah, while we could highlight a few things here and there, we will actually be going through and reading the entire book today. Uh, we will be starting in Matthew, however, Matthew chapter 12, because in it we see that Jesus actually mentions this guy, Jonah. Um, and so as we go here, my own, are we good? As we are here in the book of, jo uh, book of Matthew, we see that uh, starting in verse 38 in Matthew. Then some of the scribes and the Pharisees answered him, answered Jesus, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. This leaves us with the question, what is Jesus talking about? Something greater than Jonah. Why does Jesus use this kind of phrasing, something greater than Solomon? Right, These two people back in the Old Testament, what is Jesus talking about? And even the next question that I've kind of wondered and pondered, what is this sign of Jonah? What is this thing that Jesus is mentioning? And I think for us to better understand this question and for us to understand what Jesus means by something greater than Jonah, we want to figure out a really cool way that the Bible has been written for us. Jesus, what he's doing here is going to show us that Jonah is a type of himself. Jonah is a picture of Christ. Jonah is um, kind of in a way we... we we see there's, a, there's a, a thing called typology. It's a really fancy word, probably the only fancy one that I'll use today. A lot of you probably know what this means, even if you don't necessarily have a definition of it, or you understand how it works, even if you've never put it on paper. Very simply, typology is like a literary device that God uses to show a connection between different passages different people, or different events in Scripture. And usually there is some type of major escalation between the two. So when, when Jesus talks about being something greater than Jonah, 
What he means here is that Jonah was an imperfect and maybe in some way lacking picture of Christ. We use this and see this different times throughout the Bible. You're familiar with a few, and I'll, I'll give you a few examples that you can probably connect pretty quickly. Um, one, we see that Jesus is a better Isaac, who was sacrificed by uh, his father. You know, Abraham brought Isaac up uh, onto the top of this mountain to be sacrificed, but we see that Christ is actually the one who was sacrificed by his father. Another way that we talk about this most every week is in 1 Corinthians. Uh, we see that Paul references Christ as the, our Passover lamb. So even this, this whole celebration of the Passover is pointing us to Jesus. Uh, the book of Hebrews talks about how Jesus is a better sacrificial system. That all of our sacrifices that are listed in the, in the law are worthless and meaningless in and of themselves because they point us to a truly good and perfect sacrifice, which is Christ. While all of these are positive, uh, while all of these are positive ways that we can see typology, there are also times when it's used kind of in a negative way. So you take a negative example of something and improve upon this. So in Romans chapter 5, we see that Jesus is the better version of Adam, whereas our father, Adam, sins in the garden. We see that Christ, the new Adam, the better Adam, remains steadfast and is perfect and does not sin. And so with that in mind, let's figure out how does Jonah show us a type of Christ? What does it mean that Jonah is a type of Christ. So as we go throughout the book of Jonah, what I want to encourage you to do is look for some parallels between what you know of Christ and what we see in Jonah. This may be uh, through, the, through the prophet Jonah himself. This may be throughout some of the people that we see in the book of Jonah. And in the end, I'm going to highlight a few. And Jesus has already done one for us. Right? He's given us um, the most outright one. He says, just as Jonah was swallowed in the belly of the fish for three days, so the Son of Man will be uh, buried into the heart of the earth for three days. And I think this is one way that we see Jonah show us Christ. So if you will, turn with me to the book of Jonah. We'll be starting in chapter 1, verse 1. As you're flipping there, I want to remind us a few things. Who is Jonah? Jonah is a prophet of God. Is someone who God has spoken to and said, I want you to say these things to my people. Jonah's not mentioned very much in the Bible um, other than the mention of him by Christ. I think the only time we see it is 2 Kings chapter 14. tells us that Jonah is a prophet of the northern kingdom of Israel. Jonah would have known um, even the, the surrounding countries, the surrounding nations. The major one is the Assyrians, which we will look at today. And other than that, the rest of Jonah's life that we have is in this book, just here in Jonah. 
So what we want to do is dive into Jonah and see what does God tell us here. How is Jonah an imperfect picture of Christ? And how does Christ show us that he is truly something greater than Jonah? So if you'll begin with me, what we'll do, since we're going through the entire book, before I start, I guess I'll say this, before we go and just read the whole text and then go bit by bit and try and remind you of things that are happening, we'll take several pauses throughout the reading uh, so that way we can kind of focus on one section and uh, not get too bogged down in trying to remember, oh, what happened in chapter 2? Oh, what happened in chapter 3? Um, this way we can, we can kind of stay on track with this. So Jonah, chapter 1, starting in verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise and go to Nineveh, the great city, and call against it their evil, for it has come up against me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. And he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. And here we will pause real quick because this gives us the first really great question about the prophet Jonah. Most of the time, especially in the Old Testament, um, in the, the minor prophets where Jonah is situated, the word of the Lord comes to a prophet, and then they go and they speak it. Right? I've, I've been personally like reading through Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, and God gives these guys some really hard things to talk about. And even in the rest of the Old Prophets, even um, Amos, right? This, this shepherd guy who God says, hey, go and tell these people your word. These guys get up and they go do it. They go and give the word of the Lord to the people that God has commanded. But not Jonah. Jonah is, like we said, he's in the northern kingdom of Israel. And he hears the word of the Lord. He says, go to Tarshish. Their sin has come up. It is an evil in my nose, is kind of how uh, the Hebrew is written. And Jonah goes from the northern kingdom of Israel to the southern kingdom of Israel and gets on a boat. Assyria is not in the southern kingdom of Israel. Nineveh, the capital of Assyria, is actually northeast of where Jonah is. Jonah, first of all, heads south, gets on a boat that is crossing the Mediterranean Sea, and then he pays for a ticket to go to southern Spain, which is about 2,500 miles away. And so let's ask a question real quick here. Is Jonah following this word of the Lord? No. Jonah is running away, and, and this is most of the story that we're familiar with, right? Jonah runs from the command of the Lord, gets on this boat, and here's where we'll continue in this book. Verse 4. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. And there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so the ship threatened to break up. The mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled their cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came to him 
and said, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, cry out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us so that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots so that we may know on whose account this evil is upon us. So they cast lots. They're rolling dice. And the lot fell on Jonah. And they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. And the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is it that you have done? For the men knew he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. And here I want to pause real quick. There is something very deep about the character of God that we see in this section. There are two key points that, that I think if we, if we pass over, then we are very much going to miss what the book of Jonah teaches us. Number one, even as Jonah sleeps in the boat, he is fleeing the Lord. We see that God is sovereign and provident over all things. The Lord is in control of all things. We see this because the Lord hurls this great storm upon the sea. Right? This is on the Mediterranean Sea. Jonah is in this boat with all of these sailors, but the Lord knows where Jonah is. The Lord knows what Jonah is doing. And He also knows the hearts of those who are with him. These sailors, we've, we've seen a second ago, they are, they are not believers in the Lord. These are pagan sailors, Gentile sailors most likely, who are crying out to their gods in the midst of this sea. And they get Jonah and they bring him onto the boat. And Jonah doesn't just volunteer the information of, hey, if you throw me overboard, then this, this will end. You will be safe. Jonah continues to keep this hidden inside of his heart. And so how does the Lord show us that he knows all things and is con in control of all things? Not simply by the storm, but by the rolling of dice. Proverbs tells us that the man casts the lot into his lap and the Lord determines every outcome. We see the same thing here in Jonah. Think with me, this is not just some kind of three-hour tour that Jonah is going on to get to Tarshish, like some kind of Gilligan's Island thing. This is a 2,500-mile journey that Jonah has taken up. It is not just a small group of sailors in a rowboat trying to everyone pick a number and we'll see who it is. We're seeing this is most likely a large crew of people. There are a lot of people on this boat who are casting lots to say, who is the one who is at fault here? And the Lord, knowing all things, being in control of even this seemingly random outcome of dice, is the same Lord that has hurled this storm upon Jonah, the same Lord that has a heart for the Assyrians, and the same Lord that holds you and I together. This provident Sovereign God. 
And the second thing, very simply, is we see that we cannot flee the Lord. Just as Jonah, trying to flee the Lord, cannot flee, neither can you and I, or anyone you know. The same provident, sovereign God knows you and sees you where you're at. He knows your family members and sees them where they are at. He knows the hearts of all of those that He has created. And He knows where they are at. And what we will continue to see throughout this book is that He cares very much for His creation. Let's pick back up in verse 11. Then they, the sailors, said to Jonah, What shall we do to you so that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. And he said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard and tried to get back to dry land, but they could not. For the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord. The sailors called out to the Lord and said, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us his innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. But catch this. And then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. This passage is often overlooked by us because we jump to the next verse very quickly. One of the key points in the book of Jonah is God's love and His salvation for all who call upon His name. Do you remember what we saw these sailors doing just a few moments ago? They are crying out each one to their God, throwing cargo overboard, hoping that something somehow will help them and nothing does. These sailors who are calling out to these other gods, they toss Jonah overboard. And they watch him sink into the depths. And then they fear the Lord exceedingly. When you and I look at the word fear, most of the time we think of like a, a scaredness or being terrified. And I know in this situation, they were probably pretty ruffled. Think about this. You toss a guy overboard and then everything stops and it's calm and he says it's because of his God. You would probably take a minute and think about what just happened as well. But fear in the Old Testament does not always mean some kind of terror or scaredness. One of my Old Testament professors in my, in my undergrad, he's a, he's a Hebrew professor, and he said fear oftentimes when it's talking about the fear of the Lord, it's talking about faith in the Lord. It's talking about belief in the Lord. And so what happens here is we see that these sailors are not just terrified of this new God that they heard of, but these sailors have believed in God. These sailors have believed in the Lord, and they have made vows and offerings to this God. And for the first time in this book, 
the first of three, we see that the word of the Lord brings people to repentance. The word of the Lord brings faith to those who hear it. The book of Jonah is not about the fish. The book of Jonah is not about the man. The book of Jonah is about this. That all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Let's continue on here. Just a reminder, I, before we continue on, that's my bad. This is one of my favorite passages too, like favorite key moments. We see this here and then following with the Ninevites. Um, we see that the message of salvation is not simply for the Jews either. Not simply for the descendants of Abraham, which I will tell you is a very good thing for me because I'm not a Jew. I have no Jewish line, no Jewish lineage. If that was the case, then salvation for me would be nada. We also see this is not some kind of new plan of God starting in the New Testament with Jesus and with Paul. We see that salvation for all of the nations has always been the plan of the Lord. We see this in Genesis chapter 12 when he tells Abraham, go into this land and your offspring, the one offspring, as Paul points out in Galatians, will, be, will, will bring blessing to all of the world. This is pointing us to Christ. Let's pick up in verse 17. Uh, we may have skipped it on, on the PowerPoint. That's my bad. I'll read it for you. You know this one. If you know anything about Jonah. And the Lord appointed, again, providence, a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. And inside of this belly of the fish, Jonah begins to recount his time drowning, recount his close encounter with death. And we see there is a prayer uh, starting in chapter 2. Then Jonah, in the belly of the fish, prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice, for you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows, just bigger waves, uh, passed over me. And then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life the deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the root of the mountains. And I went down into the land whose bars closed over me forever. We'll take a pause right here. Jonah sees the depth of his situation. Jonah sees the severity of his position before God. His position before the Lord. And Jonah sees that he is going to die. Something that I never really thought about is the sailors don't ever hear about what happens to old Jonah. They think he's dead. Now, I remember watching the VeggieTales movie when I was a, when I was a young boy, and uh, Jonah's tossed out with a little life raft, and uh, everything's fine, and then this big fish just comes up and, you know, swallows him whole. But the sailors don't know that. Because Jonah's in the bottom of the Mediterranean Sea. 
Jonah is tangled. Jonah is dying. Jonah is drowning. And in his last moments, he's knowing full well, this is because I fleed from the Lord. And yet, let's continue in verse 6. Yet, you brought my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When, I, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you, into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love, but I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Again, we see this theme in Jonah's prayer and Jonah's song here in the belly of the fish. What is the main point of Jonah? It's not the fish, it's not the man, it is that salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation doesn't belong to Jonah. Salvation doesn't belong to the Israelites. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And with this in mind, we see that Jonah's hesitation about going to Nineveh is not just being around these people that he doesn't like or that he is scared to be around. Jonah's hesitation to go to Nineveh is because he knows salvation belongs to the Lord. However, now that Jonah, we see this is the second time this word of the Lord brings about faith and repentance. Now that Jonah has seen and understood the salvation of the Lord, even to those who have run from the Lord, perhaps maybe he will extend this same salvation to the Assyrians. Let's pick up in chapter 3. Then the word of the Lord came again to Jonah a second time, saying, Arise and go to Nineveh, the great city, and call against it the message that I will tell you. And so Jonah rose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. And stop reading real quick. What I want you to remember, how big is this city? Three days' journey in breadth. How far does Jonah go in? One day. What does Jonah tell them? You're going to die. That's it. Jonah, what have you learned? Jonah, what do you remember? These people, you're right, like Jonah is correct. These people in 40 days are going to die. And Jonah, who has understood and seen the salvation of the Lord, doesn't care. Jonah, preaches a pretty bad message to them. What is Jonah's message missing? 
Repent. Salvation is at hand. You may have the salvation that belongs to our Lord, but no, (laughs) you're going to die. See you later. Why doesn't Jonah go into the city? Why doesn't Jonah care? Richard Hess is an author. He, he talks about Jonah. He says that both early Christianity and Judaism see Jonah um, in, his, in his going to Nineveh trying to preserve the Israelite people, trying to save his country, if you will. The Assyrians are a major world power at that time. They are very vicious. They are very cruel. They are very mighty. They're also very close to the kingdom of Israel. And Jonah, in not delivering the message of salvation to them, if they die, if their capital city is wiped out in 40 days, Jonah would be considered a hero. So Jonah would rather die than allow himself to be a prophet who offers salvation to his enemy. Hess continues and says, Others, such as Martin Luther, finds a prophet who exemplified a dislike or even a hatred for other nations. And I think I I can see that in here, too. However, the author of Jonah, the one who writes this book, is seen as one who is admired for teaching the universal toleration of all peoples by using this negative example of Jonah. So Jonah is very hateful to the people who are not his own, and the author writes about it and tells us that to show us that this is a very bad thing. Because why? Because salvation is for all who will call upon the name of the Lord. But there is good news. We see that God is not far from the hearts of those that he created. He knows his people and he is good to change the hearts of sinful men like the Ninevites, like the sailors, like you and I, through the power of the gospel. Just as we will see this with the people of Nineveh, in the same way many of us have also seen this in our own lives. Let's pick up in verse 5. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. And the word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne and removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes, And he issued a proclamation and published throughout Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent from this fierce anger, so that we may not perish. And when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. 
Let's pause here. The people of Nineveh believed God. And like the sailors, this is not just another God that they are setting up a new temple to worship. The people, like we see in James talking about faith, the people have not just a faith of knowledge, but a faith of repentance. Right? Faith and works here. This is not simply believing in God, but also a faith that produces repentance. Before we continue on, I do have a question that I want us to ask about the character of God throughout this book, the nature of who God is. Uh, Because here in verse 10, we see that God turned or relented from the disaster he said that he would do, and he did not do it. A question I have my students think through in uh, the classes here at Grace is, does God change his mind here in the book of Jonah? Does God's character shift in this account? If yes, if God changes his mind, then either God lied to Jonah when he said that he was going to destroy the Ninevites, then God lied to the Ninevites that he said that he was going to destroy, or God lied to both. Does anyone have a problem with that? I do. Well, what's another option? Then maybe God did change his mind, but that means we can't trust God at his word. We cannot trust his promises or even what he has told us in Scripture if he's just simply going to change his mind. But we see that there's actually something else that changes here in the book of Jonah. And it's not the Lord. What changes here in, in the book of Nineveh, I mean, in the book of Jonah especially, I think I've ruined the answer for you. It's the Ninevites. The Ninevites who are sinning against the Lord. This great evil has come upon the Lord. And what do they do? They turn from their wicked ways and they repent from what they have done. And so the response of this God is different because the people are different. Consider, what if God had said, hey, 40 days I will destroy Nineveh. The people turn to the Lord and they repent and then 40 days later, boom, got them. And God says, sorry guys, I I said I would. I, I had to do it. Or what if you and I, when I die, um, having believed in Christ, instead of being with the fullness of God for all eternity, he reminds me, hey, didn't you read Romans? It tells you the wages of sin is death. I know you believed in me. I know you trusted in me, but I, but I said it, so... The difference here is not that God is changing his mind, but it is instead a different response to the people who have changed. What if the people of Nineveh had not repented of their sin? And the word of the Lord there stands. Forty days it would be destroyed. This is good news for you and I. Because I was once a sinner, like those of Nineveh deserving wrath, and death, and God has changed my life, and changed my heart, 
and given me a way to have a fullness of knowledge of this relationship with God. And no longer looks at me as a child of wrath, but as a son and an heir of his own. But what about Jonah? Jonah leaves the city, and what I would hope and expect from this man who has seen God's salvation both personally and with this big city is that he leaves the town and rejoices. Lord, you are great in your salvation. But let's see what happens to Jonah. Verse 1, we'll start in chapter 4, verse 1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry, and he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, relenting from disaster, and therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is far better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah understands several things here, and Jonah would answer God, Yes. God, I do do well to be angry. Do you know who the Ninevites are, God? Do you know these people? They are not just worshipers of a pagan God, but their culture is one that was very perverse, uh, both in, in their morality and their sexuality. They are known as being a very violent group of people, the Assyrian nation was. And Jonah says, God, I do well to be angry because you preserve the life of people like them. Jonah also will probably be seen as a traitor to his country. The Assyrians are people who have oppressed Israel again and again, and Jonah has given them mercy and salvation and will be known by his peers, by his friends, as a traitor to his country. This would be very similar. One commentator said, as, as a Jew bringing a message of hope in the midst of Nazi Germany. This is a very deep, distressing moment for Jonah. And it's because of this turn of events that I really struggle in my relationship with the man Jonah, I hope that I will see him one day and I hope to give him a really big hug and just be like, you dummy, you didn't get it, did you? And he'll say, no, I didn't, but here's my Assyrian brother over here and praise the Lord for the work that he did. Right, I struggle with, with Jonah. It's one of my favorite books in the Old Testament and one of my least favorite people. <laughs> However, the good news is that this book does not depend on Jonah. This book does not depend on him. Instead, the hero of the book is the Lord. We see that God is the one who gives us the salvation. Just as Jesus tells us that he is something greater than Jonah, we see that God's character throughout this book shines as something greater than the character of Jonah. And praise be the Lord for that.
in this last section, we're going to see that God asks Jonah a final question, and it's not one that is answered by him. It is not one that's answered by the author of the book either, leaving us on a rhetorical question, something for you to consider for yourself. As we read it, I'm going to give you a moment to to even just look at this passage. This is one that I missed growing up. We always talk about the fish. We always talk about he goes into the city and God doesn't destroy it. However, the last section in Jonah is pretty wild. Let's start in chapter 4, verse 5. Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he could see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. And so Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when the dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die, and he said, it's better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, even enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity the city of Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? What is the answer to God's question to Jonah? Do you do well to pity the plant and not the city? No. We see that Jonah is messing this up in his mind. Jonah, his hatred is kind of blinding him and he's not fully understanding this need of the gospel, this need of himself. And God says, Jonah, you don't get it do you? You're the same as the Ninevites. You're the same as the Assyrians. And you care about this plant? Nineveh, as as it said here, is a city of 120,000 persons. Population-wise, this is about twice the size of Alexandria and Pineville together. Would we not do well to care for the souls of the people in Alexandria and Pineville more than a plant? Of course. And we see that God answers in this same way. So let's ask the question, going back to Matthew 12. How is Jesus better than Jonah? This is not even really a question anymore, is it? This is a very much an understanding that like, of course Jesus is greater than Jonah. You and I are probably greater than Jonah. 
I would hope. But Jesus is saying not just that he's better than Jonah, but that Jonah is pointing us to Christ. The people of Nineveh had probably the worst prophet of all time give them a half-hearted message of doom and gloom and destruction with no hope of salvation. And yet we see Christ is the true and better prophet who gives us the hope of salvation. I'm going to give you four ways that we see Christ as the better Jonah. And I want us to think back on the book as we go. Jonah considers his own personal safety and reputation and prejudice when he hears God's word in rise and go. But Christ considers us rather than himself. We see this in Philippians chapter 2. So let's hear, have, us, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Christ is the greater Jonah. We see that Jonah's disobedience endangers the sailors and the Ninevites, but Christ walks into the midst of those who are in danger, like you and I. We see this in Romans chapter 5 that tells us while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. One will scarcely die for a righteous person, though for perhaps for a good person one would dare to die, but God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Third, we see that Jonah, and this is again the, the picture that Christ brings us to, Jonah is thrown into the belly of the fish for three days, and Christ truly encounters death and is raised from this death on the third day. This conquering of death is what leads to our salvation and hope for the life to come. We see that Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15 that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures and that He was buried and He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures and that He appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. And we jump down to verse 14 and it tells us that if Christ has not been raised, then the dead are not raised. And our preaching is in vain. Christ is the greater Jonah. And lastly, we see that Jonah's resurrection brings about the salvation of a great Gentile city. But Christ's resurrection brings about the salvation of all who would believe. In Romans 10, it says, For the Scripture says, Everyone who believes in Him will not be put to shame, for there's no distinction between Jew and Greek, just like we see in Jonah. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing His riches on all who call upon Him. For everyone 
who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Christ reminds us that he is the true and the better Jonah. We are simply called to the same obedience in the spread of this gospel. The same love for the people that God loves. May we do better than Jonah. May we be better than Jonah. But may we look to the one who is truly greater than Jonah for our hope and for our salvation. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for working in the life of a man who is flawed and sinful because this also gives us hope that you will continue to work in the lives of men who are flawed and sinful like ourselves. Father, we ask that you would work in our lives, make us free from our sin, give us a heart for the lost. Thank you for your salvation. And may we spread it to the ends of the earth. In your name we pray. Amen.